These are Deep Thoughts, and I'm Deep Shah. Thanks for listening. My guest tonight is my friend Christina. Hi, guys. Um, you came straight from work, right? I came straight from work. I just, I was just um, telling Deep quite the tale of um, of a little corporate mishap today in my elevator. Um, I work at BuzzFeed, and we just moved into new offices three weeks ago, and the offices are equipped it's kind of cool we have an internal staircase within um this big building in by union square and so i got into the building or i got i got to the elevator on my floor and they're all equipped with ipads so you press a button on the ipad and then it takes you to whatever floor you're going to there are no buttons inside the elevator so i was i was making a joke before i got on i was like this thing is like has a mind of its own and one day it's going to retaliate against all of us um and sure enough i was in the elevator and it was about to close and i saw a friend of mine coming to the elevator so i stuck my foot out to try and stop the motion sensor of the elevator and sure enough, my foot got stuck inside the elevator. So it was a really, it was a really, really tense 45 seconds of my life that I will, my coworkers will probably never get back. Um, I was audibly frightened and freaking out in the elevator. And it wasn't, it started going down um, just a couple of inches. And then, and then they pressed the emergency button and it stopped. But there was like a real moment where I was like, oh my gosh, not only is my foot stuck in the elevator, but I'm probably going to be flashing all of my coworkers. I'm wearing a dress right now. <laughs> um, so that's what happened right before I got here. It's funny, totally um, fine, by the way. <laughs> I was uh, also just talking to my CEO and a bunch of other people. And we've all surprisingly had an experience where uh, the elevator would like going down it would suddenly drop a few floors and then it would stop and it would catch itself and power of terror yeah is like the the my intimate intimate fear um and my ceo was saying how uh like one of his thoughts like the first thoughts that came to his mind was like oh like does it work if i like jump in the middle of the air <laughs> like as as the elevator is falling or like do i have to like sc- like scooch down or something and it's like it's really funny the kinds of thoughts that we have in those moments like of uh life or death kind of although in the case of <laughs> moments elevator, of peril it's like rise of rise of the machines is it going to take my hand off um it made me think about too as a kid i'm the oldest of five kids and like my my mother like when we were in shopping malls as a kid was like so her like one thing was like don't dilly dally on the escalator like or your shoelace is gonna get stuck in it and I like have this ongoing perilous fear I think of of escalators because of that and I clearly um, manifested itself this evening you know that's it's really funny because um, speaking of like machines like out for get like that are out for us um, did you see the story today about uh, the Google's AI that beat the world's best Go player? I didn't, but I'm getting like more and more sca- technology has always been an industry that that we've both worked in and it mm-hmm. used to be something that I was just like, wow, like I have so much respect and admiration and like like always it was something that always seemed positive to me and I think now that I work at a company that also has a news organization that does a lot of reporting on 
a lot of the big tech giants and kind of some of the malpractices and, you know, sometimes in some cases terrible things that some of these companies are doing um, has really changed my perspective on technology. Like Apple makes one move and they, they have the potential, right, that the headphone jack. Right. Headphones, they, they had just by one change in their product, will they probably change a vast majority of American consumer behavior? Probably. That's um, scary. Actually, you know, something that I was really impressed uh, with BuzzFeed for was the recent series of stories on Uber and the back and forth that you guys have had. And it was really impressive because, A, I think it shows um, BuzzFeed's elevation to not just like a media company that's like about uh, the stereotypical like BuzzFeed quizzes, but also, um, you know, you've spoken to me about this before where... Um, you guys are trying to rise to become like a very respectable news organization and not just that but like one with um, a certain sense of uh, what's the word I think responsibility Res- yeah I feel like is a is a word that I've used and I've this is my first job ever working at a media company and I've learned a ton um, and I, I I work in PR um, and so I don't do PR around um, our editorial team or our news division, but I work very closely with my colleagues that do. And one of the things, it's really interesting to work at a media company and do PR for media. It's very incestuous and strange. But um, I've learned a ton in the past almost two years since I've been there um, about, about reporting, about news, about, you know, how traditional journalism works, about how we're changing that model at BuzzFeed. Um, we have an investigations team of, of 17, 17 folks um, with two Pulitzer Prize winning journalists on staff. Um, and to kind of to work with them and, and hear and understand the kind of reporting that they're doing that's taking six, 12 months of time um, with a goal of doing the kind of reporting that's going to change legislation, that's going to get um, people who people exonerated from prison um, that kind of reporting and, and, you know, being inside a company that does that is, is incredibly fascinating. And also it's, it's, it's cliche to say that, you know, it, it feels good inside to do that, but it really does. It like, it, it actually truly feels like the reporting that we're doing hopefully is making an impact on the world. Um, and the Uber stuff, by the way, is something that I think about constantly. I no longer as a consumer use Uber. I, I, I can't bring myself to do it anymore. Um, we've done a series of reporting over the past year or so about um, a lot of corruption internally within within Uber, violations of customers' privacy. Um, you know, the, the latest series was um, that we just released this week was related to um, customer service at Uber in relation to sexual assault and rape reporting. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, they have an organization that's been sweeping that under the rug is, is pretty frightening to me. Um, and so I, I personally, as a consumer, I'm always telling people about the reporting, particularly around Uber, um, especially when I'm traveling for work and tend to use ride sharing services. Um, I, I always, I always try and ask our, uh, the drivers that I use with, with Lyft, um, you know, if they've heard about the reporting, if they care, mm-hmm. I ask other consumers that question all the time, like what is, what is the breaking point for like reading about something that makes you stop using a service? Like I always think about like 
Seamless is something I use every day. If Seamless right. did something absolutely terrible and, you know, BuzzFeed News reported on it, would I stop using it? Like, what would it take? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, those are some good points. I think personally also, um, I've stopped using Uber too. And, uh, you know, uh, my last guest, Marco, he stopped using Uber before I did. And we both use Lyft now for some of the, you know, same reasons that you mentioned. And I don't know, uh, you know, um, personally, I think it was a combination of the reporting that you guys did in, in concert with some other reporting that happened too. Um, I think when a company is as, you know, well invested as, you know, a juggernaut as Uber is, um, and they have so many resources and everybody uses it. I think it's hard for many consumers to care enough to, um, think that, you know, they can make an impact by not using a particular service. Um, and that's always really interesting because when everybody around you does something and you're the only one that doesn't, you kind of feel weird for doing it. Like, yeah. what's, you know, what difference am I going to make? But then you stop doing it and then the person next to you stops doing it. And then it creates this kind of chain effect, domino effect that actually, you know, that um, lends to voices being heard. And I think that, um, you know, quality reporting like that is very important. Um, yeah, and there are tons of other places, by the way, who have done really good Uber reporting. Recode has done really, really awesome reporting on on the transportation industry. Um, the Verge has a really smart guy who's doing transportation reporting. There are there are a lot of it's. It's also really interesting too how quickly. Um, technology publications have even created it as a beat it's its own beat now like now almost um almost every technology bureau or or website has has a future of transportation reporter which is super interesting to me that that didn't exist you know five years ago um it's not just i think about the future of transportation but also what they're now calling is the new gig economy yeah you have um services like Uber and Ship that our friend Micah works at and also, you know, Instacart and all these other services. And, um, you know, they employ people. Uh, Uber does it as contractors. But Mm -hmm. I know Instacart and Ship have switched to uh, W-2s and they've made them employees, which is actually kind of, you know, a good thing, I think. It's it's commendable. Um, But, you know, I'm always really interested in how this affects our economy growing up. And this brings back into the question of, oh, millennials this, millennial, millennials that, but also, you know, how is this going to affect us, our kids growing up? And, you know, going forward, what kind of education can we see, you know, for the next generation if so much of the new economy is gig-based, quote-unquote? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's It's very interesting. That's funny you said that. We have we have a reporter now at BuzzFeed News in San Francisco. Her name is Caroline O'Donovan. She's amazing. Um, she used to write for Neiman Lab at MIT Media. Or no, at Harvard. Um, but she yeah, she moved out to San Francisco to to write about about the about the gig economy, which is a really, really interesting beat, I feel like, as a reporter to explore. Um, I just learned about this company service that will um will actually it, it's a very gig economy based thing where they will 
actually get on the phone. They'll do the jobs that people don't want to do. Get on the phone when you're complaining, doing a customer service complaint or like your flight gets canceled or you want to complain to your cable company or whatever it is. Um, and they have they have a, a team of people that, that actually do that, which is an insane concept to me. That's amazing. And yeah. also like amazing in a ludicrous way. Right. Like... But, what... but people use the service, like I, I, people use the service, and I, I could definitely see people using it. Um, but is it scalable? Like, is it in a like? I it's have the no age-old question of like, yeah. is are we in a bubble right now? Right. Like, at what point are all these services that are popping up? Like, some of them are definitely seen as a bougie thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point is this quote-unquote bubble going to collapse, where you have all these, all this money being flown into all these different? "Quote unquote bougie startups, and you know, is there something else that we can get out of it? Like, um, are they just in it to get rich quick? Are they going to sell out? Um, and if so, like, how does this affect the whole market economy? Because I remember, you know, we were pretty young for the last, you know, during the uh, ninety mid nineties um, bubble burst. But uh, my dad actually." Uh, start. He was. He made his own startup with a bunch of other people. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. And last night was my dad's birthday, so I took my parents out for dinner, and we were just talking about, you know, all of this and mm-hmm. how uh, he learned so much from that experience. And it's very interesting because, like, he described it as um, learning what not to do, and also <laughs> at the same time, kind of being like a co-pilot where. Uh, you see exactly like what's going wrong, but you can't do anything about it. Like you feel helpless, which is a really interesting way of putting it. Um, Cause like we, you know, as a family, because of the bubble burst and like the company failed, um, we lost a lot of money and mm-hmm. we had a hard time growing up because of it. So I think it's one of those things that I'm personally more attuned to than I think a lot of people are. Cause I've seen yeah. firsthand the impact that it can have, you know, on a micro level on a family um, from a you know financial, like socioeconomic level, you know um, what what that can do to people. I know. Well, the other thing is like this was the year, twenty fifteen was the year where a lot of a lot of tech companies did not list. It was low on IPOs. Um, we'll see about the rest of the year. I'm like secretly kind of a, a tech finance nerd, um, but I will say I think Box Box and Square both had earnings today, and I think they both. They both um, passed their projections, I think. Box was definitely up. I can't remember about Square. Um, also, I think I remember reading Dropbox um, preemptively made an announcement. Oh, uh, the pre-IPO? Not no. pre-IPO, but um, they've been getting hit with a lot of questions um, because of all this bubble burst, quote-unquote, paranoia. Right. Um, and... People are like, oh, well, you're worth, what, like $10 billion? Like, what are your newest numbers? Like, are you actually worth that much money? Right. And I think they said that they gained 100 million uh, users. They didn't, I don't think they said they didn't which ones revenue. were paid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, like, for a year, that's not bad growth. Right. But is it worth $10 billion is, is a good question to ask. Yeah. Evaluations are, are a very strange thing, I think keep talking about work but i but i've been learning a lot about the about uh a little bit more about the technology industry through some of the reporting 
um, that our that our BuzzFeed technology team is doing, um, and it's led by a really really brilliant guy named Matt Honan. Um, he used to be an editor over at Wired for over ten years. Yeah. Um, and he has built a really really incredible team. Um, and one of one of his reporters, Natasha Tiku, um, did a really interesting story. I want to say a month or two ago about um, about startup. It was a trend piece about startup valuations, but what she had gotten as a reporter um, was she had gotten a leaked um, investor pitch deck from, I believe, from WeWork. Um, And so she kind of did a really great, smart, thoughtful analysis around, hey, here's what the deck says and and here's where their evaluation paced out. And I like crunched some numbers and like they would need to be on a run rate of X to be able to make that um, and, ba- and basically what the article concluded, and you guys are hearing a B-minus version from me, uh, but you should check it out, Natasha Tico at BuzzFeed. Um, but but basically what, what the article concluded was that there's just no way that, that that would potentially be sustainable without them either getting more capital or potentially going public and, and, and getting additional uh, investment from the public, so... Which is actually really interesting and surprising for me to hear uh, because the perception that I've had of WeWork specifically is that they've been, you know, investing in so much real estate and in like it takes a lot of capital to do that. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, it's one of the few startups that actually has revenue as they're growing rapidly. Mm-hmm. So I was always under the impression that they're doing really well. And my companies actually were one of WeWork's tenants. Um which is really, really fascinating thing to have, actually. Um, I, was, I was just reading the other day about their new We Live oh, um, yeah. initiative. That's insane. Which is like a new trend that's by, popping up right. for like co-living spaces, not just co-working spaces. Um, which, by the way, I would never do. I hope you would never do that either. I feel like it's a little too aggressive. I know uh, one of my coworkers did it. Um, really? I don't know too much about it. Um, he doesn't do it anymore. But I think that it's feeding into so many different uh, market forces right now at play, especially in New York City, between rising rent and lower wages and uh, people moving farther out into the boroughs and, you know, at the same time wanting to be at the heart of, like, all that's happening, quote-unquote, like, with culture and, like, events and stuff. And so... It's a very interesting time, I think, to live in a big city like this. Yeah, I know it is. I, Deep and I are both from New York, and I've, you've always lived in New York too. Even even for school, you were still in New York State. Yeah. Um, and same same with me. And I always get like a little bit. I've been traveling a lot for work, and I'm always like, what if I'm starting to get New York fatigue just a little bit? And at the same time, it's funny. It's like very much push and pull of my heart because I think, I I've like every day like I'll step outside and be like oh god like New York this is like such a special place um but there's like a little bit of me craving something different yeah so um eventually for a few years of my life I lived in Hastings on Hudson and unbeknownst to me at the same time Christina was like a few miles away in Dobbs Ferry um and then I moved to Rockland but uh we both met at Livestream when we worked together um, but it was really interesting to meet somebody else who worked in tech who also grew up in the suburbs because um, we both had very different experiences also at the same time. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, we always like to joke around, like, and, like, compare sometimes different stories um, of, like, what it's like to, A, grow up in the suburbs, and then, B, move to the city after college and experience this startup revolution. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm laughing. I just saw um, Deep, Deep had a friend from elementary school who works out in our studio in L.A. Um, her name's Allie. Giano, she does really cool videos. You should check out her stuff yeah, absolutely. too. Um, but but yeah, it's it's really weird. And New York is a weird place that like you'll run into people that you know in a completely arbitrary place, and it and it feels like you know in a city this big, how could you ever run into someone? But you do all the time, and it's it's a very bizarre thing phenomenon, I yeah. would say. Speaking of um, Ali Vingiano and your LA studio, you guys have been. <laughs> Like putting a lot of money into uh, your BuzzFeed Motion Pictures division, and you guys have been cracking out a lot of content, also. Yeah, we have. We do um, over sixty-five videos a week now, and we have an eighty-five thousand square foot studio in Hollywood. I, I've I've been out twice in the past month um, for work travel, and it is a really like. I'm also learning, in addition to learning a ton about journalism in the news industry I am now learning getting a crash course in Hollywood and entertainment um, and the stuff that we're doing out there is incredibly different and um, kind of how we think about developing talent how we think about content creation is super 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 different um, we're kind of turning the Hollywood model on its head a little bit um, and it's been really interesting to watch take off um, BuzzFeed motion pictures didn't really exist um, until a year and a half ago. Um, and we have a bunch of really cool advisors helping us out. We have um, producer Michael Schamberg, who is known for his work. He's done basically every Quentin Tarantino film you've ever heard of. He's done Aaron Brockovich. Um, really, really brilliant guy. And Kind of the the whole the whole pitch is that what what we're doing out there is building an R and D model for Hollywood, um, and so the way that it works is we have um, a studio with over over three hundred producers, and for the most part, the majority of those people, like like Ali, are responsible for creating, writing, directing, starring in those videos from soup to nuts, editing. Um, so the cool thing is you get a job at BuzzFeed Motion Pictures as a producer and you are actually learning and mastering the entire production chain. And actually, um, when you're coming up with a video, um, you're doing it from soup to nuts. Another really interesting thing, um, I've learned a lot from, uh, the president of our studio is a guy named Zay Frank. Um, his kind of claim to fame was in 2006, between 2005, 2009, I would say. He was he was one of the most, if you were a YouTube person, like a, a serial YouTube user in like 05, 06, you would know who he is. He is one of the most famous early, I hate saying this word, vloggers on YouTube. Um, I haven't heard that word in like 10 years. I know, years. you haven't heard the word in 10 years because no one uses it anymore, but that's really truly what he was. Um and kind of his, he's kind of created a really interesting culture out there and a team out there. But one of the things that, like, we've thought about a lot as an org, and I now have been thinking about a lot personally in my life and have been telling people about this. But um, one of the big exercises that he has everybody do there, um, he calls it re-anchoring. 
Um, and so re-anchoring really means taking the things that made you successful in the first place and throwing them out the window and challenging them. And it's a really hard thing to do because you're challenging things that made you successful in the first place. Um, so kind of how that works in practice, um, they actually reorg every quarter. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so every quarter, for the most part, and again, it does. It depends on what your job is, but if you are a content creator making videos, um, you work with a different team every quarter. Um, what kind of, like, I'm so sure what, there's some how does sort it of, work? Like, yeah. yeah, like, upheaval and, like, how people work together. Yeah, so, like, there, there's, a, there's, like, a pretty straightforward career trajectory based on experience level and all of that stuff, um, and, the, and they'll... They'll staff teams accordingly. Um, so your your manager will will be likely the same, but the projects and people that you're working on changes. So the idea is that um, people are put into groups where you have a slate of of or a theme, or it could be a platform that you're that you're working on. Um, so so for example, um, there was last quarter there was a it was called. FB40, Facebook fa- videos that will that are made to live on Facebook under 40 seconds. And they kind of came up with a bunch of principles and here are guiding things we want to think about when we're creating videos under 40 seconds for Facebook. So one of them was make them post-literate, which is a bunch of jargon, but really just means you can watch them, one, without the sound, and two... If you don't speak the language, you might be able to you might be able to understand them. The rise right. of tasty videos actually kind of came out of someone experimenting in this group. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things that we think about organizationally across all of BuzzFeed and our and our entire content creation model, which works on the on the business side as well, how and how we create advertising content, and it also works on the product side. And this whole philosophy came from product. Um, our, our, our CEO and founder is, is, um, an engineer, um, and a tech guy at heart. Yeah. Um, so one of, one of the things that we do is we constantly test and learn. So we constantly make lots of small bets, experiment, try out new things within typically a frame or a theme. Um, you figure out, you see something every once in a while, right? Like, uh, we're on a podcast, so I can't visualize here. But, you know, you maybe get, if you're a writer or a producer, you know, you'll get most of your stuff will be, you know, in terms of, of viewership or how people share it will be average, maybe at best. Maybe you'll get a couple, maybe 10 or a dozen. I don't know if you're a producer, maybe like a dozen videos that over 5 million views on YouTube, on, on Facebook, that's even higher because they count views differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but every now and then you'll get something that will hit 80 million views on Facebook video or 100 million views on Facebook video. And then we take whatever that thing is that did really well and try and make iterations on that based on the comment, based on comments that um, viewers have. So Tasty has evolved and become a kind of a franchise where we now, it started out as an experiment like everything else that we do. Um, and when I say experiment, I mean very much, they're thoughtful. It's not like we're throwing a bunch of things right. against the wall and they're confined. Um, but but Tasty, for example, started kind of as an experiment 
um, and has now evolved and grown internationally. We have Proper Tasty in the UK. Um, we have Tasty Jamai in, in Brazil. Um, so we're thinking about, too, pairing with different global editions of BuzzFeed, growing audiences on social. And that content, by the way, like never for the most part or, or barely lives on BuzzFeed. Um, all of that stuff is, is distributed. It's the process, I think, that we have as a company that, that makes it pretty hard to replicate, coupled with the, the technology that we built in-house. Um, which which we use pretty robustly, and all of our all of our producers and writers and employees have access to. Are you afraid that growing to be as big as you are now, especially your motion pictures division, that it's going to hinder your ability to out iterate and out innovate the competition? When, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's part of why that the studio reorgs every quarter. Right. Is is to kind of get people to continuously try new things. Um, and you know, that doesn't mean the core of what we do is always changing, but we always want to have like a group of people focused on trying, always trying new things. That's a Um, really smart move, I think. Um, because, you know, ultimately anybody can copy anybody else. Um, but the true measure of success is, can you stay ahead of the competition? Like, you know, that's something that apple's had to do for example mm-hmm. right especially with like apple versus samsung or something like that um i want to see samsung sorry i'm totally getting off topic but i yeah. want to see Sam- samsung's new s7 phone everybody says is amazing and it's like I the read best thing about it oh everybody says the new samsung galaxy i think the s7 it's called um i was reading a couple of my of old reporters i used to work with um have been writing about it and the Steve Kovach, who is one of the um, tech editors at Tech Insider, um, he was saying that this is like the phone that will that has potential to beat um, to beat the iPhone in market. That like it is that it is comparable, if not better, than the iPhone. That's quite the statement. Which is a really they always statement. say that every you single sh- year. Yeah, yeah. Every everyone should check out the reviews of this phone because I I read a couple of them and. Everybody is loving it. I was I was really surprised. The New York Times wrote a glowing review. I was shocked. What do you think about up and coming competitors um, that are also Android based, like OnePlus? Ooh, I don't know a ton. I don't know a ton about it. Okay, um, so they're like a small shop that do uh, like they make their own Android device, oh. and it's like well designed and everything. Um, are they a U.S. based company? I don't know be curious to find that out yeah but like i think that's one of the things with android versus ios that could be you know a mark on the on the negative column against ios is because you have by the nature of being open Mm -hmm. you have all these different people that can kind of out innovate you because they already have this other platform to build off of Yes, and Apple is like a thousand, a thousand percent the opposite of that. Um, so, yeah, I've been I've been learning a lot. I've been reading a lot about um, some PR strategy, but a lot of it has to do with like like even thinking about um, the way that like my industry works as a as a technology PR person. 
the the existing like rules and like news cycles basically exist now because of the way that Apple has debuted their products, right? right? They put a bunch of reporters in a room, they get on stage, they unveil stuff. No one has access or information before. Everybody finds out at the same time. That like it, that concept, by the way, is how almost all companies launch an app now. They might not necessarily do a, a proper show, but they'll they'll work with a couple of reporters and show them an app or or whatever it is, you know, before the launch of something then everybody will write it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, that very much came from from Apple. What are you working on these days, actually? Because you used to work pretty heavily on like the design tech side of things, mm-hmm. um, but you've since also got a promotion. So, like, what is your day to day? Yeah. So i I actually just started doing something totally new. Um, but but the three three buckets I would say that I that I cover um, and kind of think about BuzzFeed in the way that we're structured as a company is we kind of have a couple of startups within BuzzFeed so I, I would call BuzzFeed motion pictures almost a startup within it, it has like its own complete separate org um, and team and it's run kind of like an it's not an independent company at all but um, but Zay Frank our president runs his studio very differently than you know ben smith who's our editor-in-chief works with our newsroom and of course like if you have someone creating videos the the guidelines and rules and structure are pretty different than someone writing traditional news story um but it's been interesting to to learn and think about all of that stuff and i think about org um a lot now um but one but core focuses of my job are still do still do technology pr for buzzfeed so we have a team of Almost 200 um, developers, um, product folks, designers. Um, so I work very closely with a woman, Dow Win. She runs all of technology at BuzzFeed and is a total badass and is my hero. Um, so she, her, anything related to our proprietary technology or data science teams, um, we now have five apps at BuzzFeed. So I do PR for all of that. Anything related to, as a company, how we make money. So in traditional PR speak, that's corporate communications. Um, anything related to, to revenue. So I sit outside our president, Greg Coleman's office, um, and, and work with him every day. And so he has an org of about 500, um, and I have someone on my team who kind of works with me um, on, on business press for BuzzFeed. And then traditional... Um, also, stuff that would fall under traditional corp com, that third bucket, is um, things that relate to our culture, how we think about hiring and diversity, um, legal and finance, which doesn't sound sexy or interesting, but actually is. We have a really, really, really phenomenal legal team at BuzzFeed, um, led by a woman, Allison Lucas, um, who is just truly an inspiration. I really mean that. Um, so brilliant. And... Um, yeah, so th- those are the mostly the teams that I that I work with, um, and that I'm just starting to dip my toes um, into a little bit more of our international business and growth, which is totally new and different for me too. So I'm working on a project with our with our team in Brazil right now, uh, which is outside of the UK, our our second fastest growing um, international edition, and I'm learning a ton, a ton, a ton. And the cool thing about working at BuzzFeed is because things change constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, the job is never, ever, ever boring, ever. Um, 
going back to the legal stuff, yeah. uh, did you have to do a lot of back and forth between editorial and legal, like when things like the Uber story came out? Because I'm sure that needs to yes. get vetted. Yes. Yes, that stuff all gets vetted. We have actually um, another another colleague and mentor of mine, a woman, Nabiha Saeed, um, is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, lawyer focusing um, on freedom of speech and First Amendment rights and also has a really really um interesting background in drone journalism um so before she worked at buzzfeed um she worked at a firm that represented tons of media organizations the guardian the new york times um and kind of her specialty um when she was getting her law degree at yale was tackling a topic she felt like there were very very little um there was very little legal research on outside of um the the faa Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, we have a lab out in San Francisco, um, where we have fellows working in developing projects at the intersection of journalism and technology and the arts and all of it is open source, which is super cool. And, um, we have a really, really, really smart guy named Ben Kramer, um, who's been doing a ton of experiments with journalism. So everything from the stuff that he, he works on, um, goes through Nabiha to when we're doing big sweeping investigations, especially, you know, when it's a publicly traded company that gets even stickier. Um, but, but yes, or, or if we're doing a story, um, that has to do with, um, corruption at all within a government agency that gets really dicey. Um, they have a whole alias at BuzzFeed. What is it called? They have a fo- a really funny FOIA alias at BuzzFeed that anytime a reporter is 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 doing. Do you know what FOIA is? I don't know what FOIA. Okay, is. I I've learned so much about about um news. So FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, and that allows journalists or or citizens, but the agency responds to journalists much mm-hmm. faster than citizens. Um, that allows you to. Um, to request and at times subpoena um, government documents. Okay. Um, so that's everything from we did a really, really fascinating investigation that I t- think took eight months of reporting in in um, Afghanistan um, um, by a woman named Asmat. And... Um, so, you know, everything from records from she, – she did this big investigation about, um, you know, the, the U.S. military's supposed effort around creating schools in Afghanistan. And, and she had actually gone to the places where, you know, spokespeople for the government had said, and the military had said, hey, we've set up X many schools. She went and was like, hey, there are only about a dozen schools here. Where is that money going? Um, and, and so things like that get very, very, very heavily vetted. Um, through our legal team. Are you worried um, at all of ever getting to a place where the company is too scared to pursue a certain story? Or No, not right. Well, I mean, maybe eventually, but I, do, I don't think that that would ever be, because be an issue. I, I think... feel like that always happens at some point to yeah. every single news organization. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's funny, our editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, was the one who, who leaked that story about the Donald Trump New York Times tapes. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd be super interested in listening to those. Yeah, I, I think everybody would. That was kind of his point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, there's also like a really interesting like ethics and journalism thing that I'm learning. You know, like if, if you say something is off the record, it, at what 
at what point, you know, that that's an ethical agreement between, you know, you as a reporter and your source. At, at what point is it okay to breach that? That's like a huge question as a reporter. Um, and also a lot of work for you in PR. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the news the news reporting that we're doing is just, is just completely opened my eyes, and I've and I've learned so so much, and I so so also has given me such deep respect for you know the reporters at other um, news organizations that I work with regularly. I think it's a hard job. Um, that can be said about almost anything. Like yeah. being on the outside and looking in on something, it's so easy to assume a lot and to. Um, kind of judge and also like oh hey like you know this person didn't do this they must not be good at their job but once you realize how hard things are um, I remember first starting out as a designer um, I used to make a lot of assumptions about popular websites and you know popular services and the way that they're designed and you know the more experience I got the more I realized how nuanced things are and like why things are the way they are and why certain organizations make certain decisions and like what the bottlenecks are and like a designer might be really good but you know something in the organization might have caused something to change you know this other experience so it's really like i think if it's it's gonna get a little cliche in here again but like you know if more people were open-minded about that kind of thing um I think we just overall would be a better world. No, I agree. It's interesting too. We both kind of work in 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 not traditional service oriented fields, but like corporate service oriented fields where, you know, marketing, PR, design are all things that that sometimes are not part of like the core process of creating necessarily a product depending on where you work and what what the the structure is. Um, but yeah, it's it's something I think about a lot. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Um, I I wanna I wanna find out. I'm gonna start asking all of my friends who who still uses Uber. I'm now on a crusade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I noticed like a bunch of my coworkers still used Uber, and I pulled out. I was last night, not last night, two nights ago. Um, I went to a taping of the Moth oh, in cool. Gowanus. And with a few coworkers, and um, I, you know, I started reaching for Uber, and I was like, "Nope, Lyft." And then the coworker that I was going to split it with, because he lives in Crown Heights, he was like, "Oh, you don't use Uber?" I was like, "No, I use Lyft now." So I think you know, a lot of people also aren't up to date, or like they don't read the news, or like they don't keep up necessarily, which right. is another big challenge, right? Right. I think the idea, too, is hopefully, like, people that are avid consumers of technology news, like us, like, we're kind of the prime demographic for that story. Is an average consumer necessarily going to care? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. But the hope is that that eventually trickles down. Yeah. For sure. Thanks. Thanks, Steve.